0: So today we move on into Revelation chapter 11, and before going any further, let me remind you that in studying this very challenging, highly figurative, symbolic book that nevertheless is filled with historical accuracy and literal meaning, we have sort of a dual, triple challenge to us, because on the one hand, we want to understand what God's Word actually says in its context. And to follow after the principle that I shared with you several times already, that these words were originally not written to us, but in this case, the book of Revelation, it's very clear to whom it was originally written, to the seven churches that were in Asia, meaning the area roughly modern-day Turkey and Greece. And so we need to think first, what did those people understand this? What did John intend for them to understand And then working through that, we jump ahead to the next thing, which is, okay, what does it mean for us? What do we take away from this? So in this study today, as I've done in some of the other studies, I want to blend a little bit of each of those things together so we understand the original context and meaning to the original audience, but then also discuss some things about what does this mean today? Now, we're going to be focusing on just the first two verses of chapter 11, and we'll, I think, eventually cover the whole chapter and future sermons. But let me begin by saying that back in 1937, the famous movie producer Walt Disney released his first full tr- excuse me, full-length film. Many of you may have seen it as children, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Now, the production of that film, was a task of monumental proportions. The animation artist at Disney Studios had to draw over a million pictures. This was long before the age of uh, digital imagery and, and computerization. And the final product, each of those a million pictures, flashed across the screen for no more than 1 of a second. And if you sat in the movie theater watching that film and similar ones, it seemed very simple and real. And so the idea when you see this is that you really have no idea of what went on behind the scenes and the making and production of it. In many ways, the events that pass before our lives in the history of this world are like that or similar movies. God puts careful thought and attention into every detail of his creation and the unfolding events of the world. And yet, the events of history pass before us at, I guess, what you call regular speed. We have no idea, generally, how much God's sovereign control has filled every second of the events that have ever happened or ever will happen in this world. Now, in chapter 11, we have one of the most important sections of the book of Revelation. And yet, there are many Bible scholars some of whom disagree about what the overall message of Revelation is. Nevertheless, they all agree that chapter 11 is a difficult one to come to terms with. Now, the chapter divides itself into three sections. The section we cover today, verses 1 and 2, is the measuring of the temple of God. Then, the next time we study this, we'll be talking about verses 3 to 13, the two witnesses. Yes, the famous two witnesses of Revelation. And then verses 14 and 19, at last, the blowing of the seventh trumpet. But let's look at these first two verses in chapter 11. John says, Then I was given a reed, R-E-E-D, like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city. We've got to ask ourselves, what's the holy city underfoot for 42 months? Now, let me just stop there and say that the modern reader, especially those who've had the unfortunate experience of being under the teaching of dispensational pastors and Sunday school teachers, their first reaction to this is not to think, well, what did this mean? What's the symbolism here to those first century Christians? No, no, no. They want to look at the modern headlines and all the rest of the stuff that's been thrown into these verses by the dispensationalists and others that have nothing whatsoever to do with what's going on here. We have seen on several occasions that there are close connections in Revelation, the book of Revelation, to what some of the Older Testament prophets saw and were told to do. For example, in the previous chapter, which we did not cover in full, but in chapter 10, verses 9 to 11... Listen to this. He says, So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 3. The prophet Ezekiel was told to do the same thing in his day. Now, in the measuring of the temple here, in Revelation chapter 11, we find the same thing happening in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 47. A man is told to measure the temple with a measuring rod. But now here, John is given a reed, like, you know, a reed from a plant, for the same purpose. And I think that there are several things that are meant to be understood in this. For one thing, I believe, and I'm not alone in this understanding, that this is one aspect of solid biblical proof that at the time John had these visions, the temple at Jerusalem was still standing. If the temple was not standing in Jerusalem, the Lord would not have told John to go and measure it in the vision. At least I don't think he would have. And parenthetically, let me say, and others have argued that if something as catastrophic as the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 had already taken place at the time any of our New Testament documents were written, something would have been said or referred to about that. But rather, what we have are prophetic statements that say it's coming to pass from that time. Frequently, the Bible will use... Measuring as a symbolic action to divide the holy from the profane and the true from the false. So to measure the temple here in this vision has symbolic meaning. And although the old temple is no longer needed, nevertheless, for the Christian, the idea, the concept of a sanctuary or a temple or a dwelling place of the Lord is very important. The point is, we want to be part of and worship in the true temple, the true church of our Lord, and not a false one. The true church. You know, uh, there's a lot of confusion in our day, switching now to, uh, you know, modern application. There's a lot of confusion over the meaning of that word church. And I mean in terms of modern usage. I'm not talking about the Greek or Hebrew roots of it, and any, any of the rest of it. Some people think that the word church refers only to a building where worship services are held. Oh, yeah, I drive by that church on Main Street in Conestee all the time. But to some folks, being a member of the church means having gone through some ritual or ceremony, such as baptism or confirmation. To others, church means attending services every week or twice a year, Christmas and Easter. For some people, the word church refers to that blank space that you fill in if you're asked your religious affiliation on some document. Now, thankfully, here in chapter 11 at verse 1, it gives us three distinctive things concerning the identity of a true church. Now, yes, I know the classic Reformation marks of the true church. This isn't meant to contradict or contravene that. We're just going with what this text says at this point. First of all, it's telling us a true church is made up of people who've been born of the Spirit of God. That was Jesus' point to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Where he told him, now listen to this, I, in preparing this message, I, I, I realized something in this verse. I've, I've read it in many translations many, many times. I've heard it as many of you have. But listen to what Jesus says here, talking to Nicodemus, John 3. In all truth I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, is the old classic King James translation. Do you see what the emphasis is? You know, the the modern fundamentalist and evangelical types, they just jump off there where it says being born from above, being born again, and they ignore the rest of the verse. The whole point of being born again or born from above or reborn by God's spirit is to see to become a part of the kingdom. Once again, this is the priority of the message of Jesus himself. The coming, the arrival, the spread, the expansion of the kingdom of God. The only way a person can come to faith in Christ is through the Spirit of God, giving him or her both the desire and the will to do that. In the Older Testament times, the presence of God dwelt among the people in the holiest part of the temple. But all of that changed with the coming of Jesus the Christ. And also when the Holy Spirit came upon the church on the day of Pentecost, Now, the old temple was still standing. It was still there in Jerusalem at that time, but it had already been rendered obsolete. It had already been declared desolate by our Lord himself. It was no longer necessary. Why wasn't it necessary? Read the book of Hebrews, if if nothing else. It wasn't necessary because Christ himself is the true temple, the true Israel, the, the true high priest, the ultimate and final sacrifice for the sins of his people. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaks of the church as the new temple of God where he writes, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwelling place for the Spirit, for God by the Spirit. You know, for many years now we've heard the self-proclaimed prophecy experts okay they don't call themselves that but you know they got their closed circuit cable tv shows and they write the books and especially now you can get them self-published they uh, they say that someday soon and it's always soon you know they've been saying this for decades and decades and decades the jews in, in the modern state of israel are going to rebuild the temple you know some of these poor people have become so gullible and they're such suckers they, they've given money for this sort of project Now, maybe I wouldn't begrudge some Orthodox Jewish person if they wanted to put their time and efforts into rebuilding a temple, but it it boggles my mind that anyone who claims to be a Christian would contribute to such an effort. Now, apart from the fact that I don't think that will ever happen, that's just my opinion based on what I understand Scripture to say, but let's just say for a moment that the Jews announced, in in the Israelites, excuse me, the, the Jews and the Israelis announced Tomorrow, we're going to rebuild the Temple of Solomon. We're going to kill all the Muslims who have the mosque there on the Temple Mount. And we're going to get rid of them. And then we're going to rebuild the Temple of Solomon. We should have it done within a year and a half. Something like that. Let's just say they do that. So you see, for us, the question is, would a rebuilt temple be the true temple of God? Sadly, there would be probably some evangelical types who would be very happy about it. But fortunately for us, we don't have to speculate on such things. Because God himself has given us the answer in 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17. Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? See, formerly in the older times, God's Spirit and presence was in the temple. Now, that has faded away. It's, it's put aside. It's thrown out. God's temple are the people of God. The Spirit dwells in the church. If anyone, verse 17, he says, destroys God's temple, he will, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Friends, you can't get around those words, except you can deny them, but their, their meaning is plain and obvious. By the Holy Spirit, God dwells in and with his church. So the true church, which is made up of individual believers, families who have been born into that kingdom by the Spirit of God, that is his true temple the church and the sanctuary of our Lord. But then secondly, a true church is made up of those who have been washed in the blood of Christ. You know, one of the things that really distinguished the older covenant era was the people's reliance on uh, blood sacrifices to atone for their sins. God commanded that certain animals be slain and their blood shed on certain altars by certain priests. But all of those things, they pointed forward to one thing, the final sacrifice, the coming of the Christ, and the final sacrifice that he would make for his people. I referred to the book of Hebrews a few moments ago. Let me read from it now, chapter 9, verse 22, reading from the ESV. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So then the measure, the rule of the true church of Christ, is that it is composed of all those who have had their sins Washed clean through the blood of Christ, symbolically demonstrated in the sacrament of baptism. And then, thirdly, a true church is identified by true worship. Notice again what he says in verse 1, reading from the New King James 11:1: Rise and measure the temple of God. He's told to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, if there's a problem today with people understanding what the word church really means, there's a real problem with this in our churches today. See, many people are under the false notion that if they go to church and they sing hymns and say prayers and take communion and so forth, then that's, that's really what worshiping God is all about. But thinking like that misses the main point of worship and attending divine services. The outward things of worship themselves are a mockery unless they proceed from spirit-born souls. Yes, I think the mechanics of worship are very important. And yes, I think that there are things that are done in so-called worship services that are nothing more than carnal entertainment and a bunch of baloney. And I think it's important that we worship in the tradition of the church of all the ages. There are certain elements in liturgical worship that go back to the earliest days of the Christian movement. And there are some churches that pride themselves on being highly liturgical and following these formats. That We have the the documents that prove and say A.D. 150, Christians were following this order of worship. But that doesn't guarantee anything. For God to be truly worshipped, he must be truly present in the worshipping community among the people. You know, it reminds me of a story of a little boy who had gone to church that Sunday morning with his father. And later that night, the little boy was kneeling by his bed saying his prayers. His father was, you know, sitting in the bed waiting for him to finish. And the little boy said, and dear God, we had a good time in church today, but I wish you could have been there. So measuring the temple was a reference to those who made up the true church. That is the true Israel of God. Not everything that has the name, quote, church is a true church. If the three distinctive marks or characteristics that we've just learned about are not present, spirit-born believers, blood-washed followers of Christ, and true worshipers of God Almighty, if those things are not there, then you do not have a true church. Now, here in verse 1, we have this reference to the city of Jerusalem and the outer court of the temple and also the temple itself. That's how things look to John as he would have seen them in that city in Jerusalem and that temple in his day. Now, in this age in which we live, the new age, the new covenant age, the the messianic age, this is the age that was to come. Jesus has come. He's been born. He's died. He's paid the sacrifice for sin. He has ascended to his father's right hand. And we are in that age from the ascension to his final coming at the end of this time. So we have a similar threefold distinction concerning the church or what we might call the spiritual Jerusalem. You had the outer court, you had the inner court, you had the temple itself or the Holy of Holies. So for us, the correspondence could be thought of this way. I'm not saying this is an ironclad thing, but I think this is helpful. There is the nominal Christian world at large, which is really a false church. Then there's what we might call the show church, And then there's the real, authentic thing, the true church. Now, in comparing the two sets of distinctives, the nominal and the show church, it comes out like this. Jerusalem corresponds to the world of nominal Christianity. That is, all those who think of themselves as Christians for no other reason than that they have grown up in a home or a neighborhood where people go to some church on some occasion. But such people... And such churches have no hold on the great truths of Christ and salvation, sin, repentance, hell, and judgment. Now, the outer court, that's what I'll call the show church, is somewhat closer to the real thing, to the inner sanctuary in, in the illustration, but it is not the real thing. This is the worldly church, those who do go to church, but not because they are in union with Christ. They go to church because it's maybe the social thing to do where they live, or perhaps Maybe they enjoy getting together with other people, or maybe they enjoy the music or the architecture of the facility. You know, that's what a lot of grand old churches have become. I, I've, I've seen pictures of it, but you, you can see the First Presbyterian Church in downtown Pittsburgh is a massive, beautiful Gothic structure. There are Episcopal churches, Anglican churches that you know breathe the the faith of several hundred generations of people. But now they're nothing more than concert halls and places where people go together for social gatherings. They never enter the true church worship of God with his people because they don't really know God. So John is instructed here only to measure the temple, the true church of the believers. The false church and the show church, they're excluded from the measuring. They are not counted by God as among his people. They are not in covenant with him. And so they do not have the privilege of his favor and his protection. But notice something else here. It says in verse 2, reading from the ESV, And they will trample the holy city, that is the Gentiles, the holy city for 42 months. Now, this part of the vision had a literal fulfillment in the first century and that AD 70 time period. But there's also a lesson for us today. Now, you heard in our Older Testament reading day today from the book of Daniel that in Daniel 7, Daniel had a vision. Some years ago, you know, we went through that whole book. And in that vision, he, it was revealed to him things that lay in the immediate future of old covenant Israel in that time. And in particular, the Lord revealed to him a time of future judgment against them And as we heard a few moments ago, here it is again, Daniel 7, verse 25. I'm reading it from the God's Word translation this time. This Antichrist-type figure, a prefiguring of an Antichrist-type figure who's going to attack Israel in, in that day, he says, He will speak against the Most High God, oppress the holy people of the Most High, and plan to change appointed times and laws, and the holy people will be handed over to him, now notice, for a time, times, and half of a time. Now when we studied that passage several years ago, we learned how it was the pagan ruler Antiochus Epiphanes who fulfilled that prophecy. He attacked Jerusalem around 160 B.C., and among other blasphemous things, he sacrificed a pig on the holy altar to Yahweh, God. And this strange reference to A time, times, and half a time. Well, we learned then, and we still know today, based on the reading, that actually equals a three-and-one-half-year period. That was roughly the amount of time that Antiochus Epiphanes dominated Jerusalem. We know that from the historical records. Three-and-a-half years equals 42 months, or 1,260 days. So then here in Revelation is yet another phrase That recalls a time in which God's wrath was turned upon Jerusalem for their rebellion and sin. And our Lord Jesus himself spoke of this very thing happening to the Jews and their temple in that time. In the generation of those who lived and saw the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. In Luke 21, verse 20... He warned them, he said, when you, meaning you people to whom I'm speaking to right now, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you must realize that it will soon be laid desolate. Another translation says, you will know at that time that its destruction has arrived. And then in chapter 21, verse 24 of Luke, he says, for great misery will descend on the land and retribution on this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive to every Gentile country and Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until their time is complete. And lo and behold, as we come to know through the history of the Roman wars against the Jews in Jerusalem, guess how long it lasted? How long the siege lasted? Three and a half years when Vespasian and later his son Titus began their assault on the city. It started in the middle of A.D. 68, and then three and a half years later in A.D. 70. The walls of the city were breached and trampled underfoot. The Lord Jesus warned in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And now, as he's revealed to John in the book of Revelation, the city of Jerusalem was in for a terrible time of judgment and carnage in that generation. The Gentiles, meaning in this case the Roman legions, would trample it down for 42 months. And that is exactly what happened. But now, as I said earlier, there's more here than simply the history of a remarkable fulfillment and confirmation of prophecy. Let's go back now for a moment to our comparison of the true temple or church with the false temple or the false church. The false church, the show church versus the true church. Those outside the borders of the temple, of the true church, these are the ones who end up being trampled by the Gentiles. Now, in that sense, the Gentiles represent pagan, heathen ideas and worldviews and lifestyles. Those who are not in union with Christ will sooner or later nail their true colors to the masthead of unbelief, and they will fly the flag of Satan and not that of Christ. Those who are nominal Christians, such people become victims of every ungodly idea and whim and power. And their lives will be trampled all over by the consequences of their lifestyles. And yes, that includes people who give themselves over to debauched sexuality, uh, riotous living, drug abuse, alcoholism, and all of these other things. But don't you dare think that that's, that's the limit of it. Because I think we have seen in the past several years a massive demonstration about how people who have preferred to listen to a godless government rather than obey the divine word of God, and they've given themselves over to be trampled by those who do not have their best interests the in heart. They lie to your face constantly. But even worse, as bad as that may be, At the day of judgment, when each soul will stand before the Lord Christ to give an account of themselves, those outside the true church will be eternally devastated by the fate that they have chosen for themselves. Jesus warned in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. He says, on that day, some will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I'm sure that most of us here today probably at least remember when we heard the news about the death of Princess Diana. That was back in 1997. Now, there are a lot of theories about why and how she died, but at least going with the the popular version, medical analysis following the accident showed the chauffeur had three times the legal limit of alcohol in his blood and that he was driving in excess of 120 miles an hour through this tunnel in Paris when he crashed. I think by any measure it was obvious the wrong man was driving that car. But the fact is, the wrong man driving the car is not so unusual for celebrities. Here's what I mean. There was an interview with a man who was a security expert and an expert on personal bodyguard safety, and he remarked at this time that in his experience, movie stars and celebrities might spend upwards of $200,000 on an armored car or a specially equipped limousine, but then they would spend next to nothing on training somebody to drive it. He said the drivers of, for such people were usually hired based upon how friendly they are or how well-known they are to the celebrity or to a mutual friend. Now, I don't know. I don't have the statistics to prove it. But I'm guessing that following the death of Princess Diana, there were probably many celebrities and uh, people in the public eye, well-to-do people who began to pay much more attention to whether their chauffeur could get them safely to their destination more so than whether they could carry on a charming conversation. My friends, the same sort of wisdom applies in the realm of our beliefs about God. See, the issue is not whether our beliefs make us feel good, not whether we like this kind of church music or that kind of architecture. The real issue with which we have to do is this. Are our beliefs in line with what God requires of us? Are they based on his eternal standards of truth and law? Are they able to bring us fully into Christ's kingdom? And do we act in obedience to what we say we believe? May God, by his grace, empower us to do so. Let us pray.